Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Well, good morning. It is Friday. Friday, Friday, Friday. Okay, we have a lot of ground to cover, and Luke Moon from the Philos Project is already on the line, ready to talk with us about what is going on in Azerbaijan. Um, and uh, and so I don't want to keep him waiting, but I do want to just remind you that the Babylon Bee is a satirical website. It is not. It's it's a fact. In fact, formally, like officially, fake news. Like it, it's not real. It's made up stories. Now, those made up stories are generally based upon something that is happening in real life. And so, when the Babylon Bee reports out that Twitter has shut down its entire network in order to slow the spread of negative information about Joe Biden, um, it is functioning online in a similar way to The Onion, for those of you who remember that particular uh, satirical journalistic effort. Well, the president of the United States tweeted out the Babylon Bee story about Twitter shutting down its entire network. Now, let me point out, he pushed it out on Twitter. Obviously, Twitter was not shut down. Twitter did not shut down its own entire network if we are all able to this morning still tweet. Okay. So um, I'm sure that the president of the United States, somebody on his staff, will pull down the tweet that says that Twitter has shut down its own entire network to slow the spread of negative Biden news, uh, a story that he read in the Babylon Bee, which, let me remind you, is a satirical website. Now, others have been caught up in the Babylon Bee's quite good uh, satire. Um, So I'm not saying that the president is the only one to have failed to see the uh, the humor in the fake news site, the official, it, it's it's satire. It's not true. It's making it's it's making fun of something that's going on in the culture that's so close to the truth that obviously many of us are fooled by it. So let me just encourage you, remind you again today. Let's be people not only of the truth but purveyors of the truth. People who only pass along to others that which is true, true truth. Let's be people who um, who speak the truth and do so in such a way that uh, honors our representation of Jesus in the world. All right, Luke Moon is with me next. He is a personal friend of mine. He works with the Philos Project. I have been with him in the part of the world um, known as the Middle East. We have been to Israel together. Providence Magazine is one of the uh, places where you can engage with the Philo Pro- Philos Project and get really great uh, on on-the-level news about what's happening, particularly in the Middle East. He is going to talk with us about Azerbaijan. Many of you have said, I just don't get what's going on over there. Luke's going to help us understand. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Luke Moon is the deputy director of the Philos Project. You can find them at philosproject.org. Philos is P-H-I-L-O-S, philosproject.org. Luke, welcome to Mornington, Carmen. Hey, good morning. I'm excited to be here. It's been a long time. It has been a long time. It's been far too long. It is great to um, to hear your voice this morning. So um, here's the conversation I'd like to tee up with you. There's several things I want to talk with you about, but let's start with this. We hear okay. references in the news, and we've actually talked here on the program, but we just admit we just really don't understand. We don't understand the geography. We don't understand the history, the situation on the ground for Armenian people living in the boundaries of a nation called Azerbaijan. So help us understand who the players are, what's the geography, and really what's going on. Yeah, this is, it's a very complicated situation in a very complicated region that has very long words, very, you know, it's, it's a lot of okay, words. But the nation is maybe the most right? fun to say. It's maybe the most fun <laughs> country, like, right? If you lived in Azerbaijan, you'd be like, I have a cool country name. I think so. I think so. So I think, you know, you and and it's all kind of small, too, and it's mountainous and, and it's 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 beautiful. Um, but uh, Arkush or this as you know, as as the Armenians uh, identify it or um, Negro. Um, oh, gosh. Um, That's OK. You don't have to thing. come up with it. <laughs> It's okay. Early, See, this is how early, hard this early, is, right? Early. Right, but uh, in in our, our they, it's it's really inside the uh, the country of uh, Azerbaijan, right? And it's and it's uh, a mountainous region, but it's been a majority uh, Armenian community for thousands of years, right? And this whole region is kind of you have on one side Turkey, you have Russia, you have Iran, which are all kind of major players and all have kind of, you know, we want our empire back kind of people right now. Right. So unfortunately, Armenia is like stuck in the middle of that. Uh, and, you know, this the there's there's a there's a war going on right now. So this region um, sort of understands itself to be independent because it's populated by people who are Armenian even though it's technically within the borders or boundaries of Azerbaijan. Is that exactly. at least one fair that, way of understanding it? That is, that is a, is a very good way of saying it. You know, I, I, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's not unlike probably, you know, the, you know, back in the day when there was the, you know, Crimea, um, you know, uh, Ukraine situation and, and Russia was like, well, those are our people, you know, they've been there a long time and and it's a majority people. And so we think it should be kind of connected. Right. So there's that kind of of situation. There was a conflict for a long time uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s over, you know, kind of an independence um, movement that was desiring self-determination and which which, you know, I think as a as principal philos is very much in, into allowing self-determinations of peoples and and it you know it, it unfortunately um recently the there was a you know the their flare-up of this of violence as a result i think i think of turkey aggression um because turkey has you know big desires to see itself reasserted as you know the ottoman empire so 
It's it's okay. a very complicated situation, but it has these kind of mega nation, mega empire uh, movements going on around it. So I'm so glad that you brought up Turkey, because the one thing that I think some people at least associate with the term Armenian and the Armenian people is the Armenian genocide that took place from 1914 to 1923. 1.5 million Armenian people, um, ethnic Armenians, carried out in Turkey. But Turkey still denies that it ever happened. And so I do think that when we think about this people group and we think about this region of the world, um, there are some very long historic conversations that we could be having. There are certainly ethnic um, and religious conversations that we can be having. Turkey, you know, at that point in time, or, you know, the seeking to establish the, the, the Ottoman Empire was what was going on then. Um, in the last century, and Turkey seeking to reassert, reassert itself today in much the same way as a leader in the region um, in, you know, in, in terms of Islamic rule. Um, tell us uh, what the Armenian people um, would by and large be, or this group of people in Azerbaijan who are Armenian, would be of what faith, or is it a blend? No, it's not a blend. It's, it's, they're Christian. And oh, actually, I mean, see, we haven't highlighted this yet. This seems to be important. This is a Christian is minority. Important. It's very important because it's it, not only is it a Christian minority, but Armenia was the first nation that uh, became, in a sense, a Christian nation. Uh, actually, there was, you know, back in the day, and we're talking like, you know, Roman times, pre, pre, uh, you know, uh, Constantine times. It was like. Ar- Armenia was was actually a Christian nation, the first one, if there was, you know, if, if one can have that. And and it, they have been Christian the whole time. Mm. And, you know, if things have flared up here and there, but they have held on to their Christian identity, even though they're sou- surrounded by 100 million Muslims. Right. And and so you have in this what's often overlooked by, you know, by a lot of you know, pundits and even, you know, many in the, you know, um, State Department and some of the other, you know, foreign offices kind of roles t- tend to overlook the religious component of this. But I think it's it's central. We can't ignore that at the at the very least, because it, it very much is, you know, 100 years ago, there was an Armenian genocide and and there has Turkey has has continued, as you say, to deny it, it ever did anything and then he participated in it and and they work very hard to make sure that that nobody ever knows about it uh, even though it's it's well known and here it is a hundred years later and you know they still are looking for opportunities to push uh armenia i mean they can't be pushed into the sea but that is you know since their 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 vision i think they want it all gone and to be no more Armenian people ever. Hmm. So we uh, we hear Luke Moon using the term genocide. Um, it's a term that we have used uh, of late in terms of the efforts of China uh, in relationship to the Uyghur people. It's a term we recognize in relationship to uh, the Jewish Holocaust in World War II. Um, and so I just want I want us to be familiar with the words. I want us to recognize what's going on. And when we see headlines related to Azerbaijan and the Armenian people, um, we need to recognize that we're talking about Christians 
who are living in a very hostile neighborhood. They are living in the context of um, of a Muslim world. And so it's an important conversation for us to be having. This is not just about some geopolitical skirmish. Uh, there are real religious implications uh, and and there's a religious storyline here that's often missed by the secular press. Luke Moon and I have to take a very brief break. When we come back, uh, we're gonna we're gonna visit really quickly Facebook's ban on Holocaust denial, which is an interesting step forward uh, in terms of that conversation as well. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm talking with Luke Moon from the Philos Project, and we'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Luke Moon from the Philos Project, you can find him. Um, at the Philos Project, you can also find him at ProvidenceMag.com. That's where you can grab the Providence, uh, the, the Providence Magazine, which is a great resource for understanding um, what is going on around the world um, from, a, from a Christian worldview. So great, um, great information there if you're looking for a foreign affairs resource. Um, let's talk about, Luke, let's talk about uh, Facebook banning those who deny the Holocaust. First of all, let's just... Um, let me just say, have you ever in your own life witnessed or seen any evidence of uh, of the Holocaust related to the Jews in World War II? Uh, yes. Yes. I've, I mean, I've, I've seen lots of information about it. I mean, it, there's a Holocaust museums in a lot of major cities in the United States. And also, you know, the 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 in, in Israel, there is the Yad Vashem, which is the Holocaust memorial. And it's it's. Very powerful and, and a moving experience to visit. I encourage everybody to do so. So Luke and I, um, because of uh, the generosity of others, I, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel with Luke and some Philos Project friends. Um, I had the opportunity to go to Yad Vashem. Uh, it is it is an undeniably life-changing experience. Um, I found it difficult to eat or sleep or even see clearly uh, following just witnessing. It was particularly the shoes. I'll tell you, Luke, uh, the shoes still kind of haunt me um, and haunt in a good way. Uh, I am mindful that each one of those pairs of little shoes once contained, you know, a living human being. Uh, who was walking on the earth and whose life was extinguished um, because of the hatred of of who they were because they loved their God. And it's a provocation to um, never forget, and it's a provocation to stand against those who deny. And so I just wanted to um, remind listeners today that the Holocaust uh, really happened and it's not just one time in one place. We think of the Holocaust as, you know, exclusively related to the Jews and exclusively related to World War II. But it wasn't just Jews in World War II um, at the hands of the Nazis. And 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 Holocausts are not just this one time isolated experience. There are genocides of other people groups in other times and places. And there are attempts at genocide in the world today. And as people of convictional faith, we have to stand against those who deny that it's happening. Um, which is why I keep raising the Uyghur issue uh, in China as well. Okay, um, lastly today, Luke, um, I want to talk about um, Shadi uh, Kalul because I had an opportunity to meet Shadi and um, and actually enjoy the hospitality of his family. We are now going to talk about Arameans, not Armenians. So first of all, 
tell us who the Arameans are, tell us who Shadi is, and then invite everybody to pray for Shadi's son. Absolutely. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. It really is is important for us. I, I think so. So the the Armenians different than the uh, <laughs> the, See, the Arameans. Arameans. There you I, go. I did it myself. The Arameans are different than the Armenians. The the Arameans are uh, you know Ar- uh, Abraham was a wandering Aramean, right? So it's this it's a people group that that is uh, very ancient. Uh, they are neither Arab. In, they live in Israel and the surrounding areas. Uh, they, they, um, they, they're neither Jewish nor Arab. Uh, and Shadi Kalul has been working to revive the Aramaic language and culture within his community within northern Israel. Uh, there's also uh, people in in southern Lebanon and and other people in the region. But Shadi has been. You know, he, he's one of those guys that just won't stop. And he's been, you know, got got Israel to recognize uh, the, the uh, Arameans as a ethnic people group within Israel. Uh, and he's been working to revive the language uh, has, you know, been, he, you know, his son, Aram, uh, is is one of the first uh, young people to to learn and speak, uh, you know, a- Aramean as a you know, normal language that people would normally speak around the house kind of thing. And unfortunately, uh, he has uh, uh, he has brain cancer. And this, um, this child, yeah, this child. This and, child yeah. and so Shadi's we want to I want to lift this up yeah, and I want to I want to lift it up because um, we're talking about um, in terms of Shadi and his family, um, we're just we're talking about just one of the most precious people I've ever met in all the world who's just devoted his life um, to to a, the resurrection of a language that is precious um, and a people that, who are precious. And so um, I want our listeners to be invited in to this conversation about praying for Aram. Um, and I want you, if you are willing, to go to philosproject.org um, and click on the Hope for Aram tab, read the story, and pray with us for this little boy. Um, Luke, in closing our time together today, let's pray. Father, we do lift up little Aram to you. Um, we lift, uh, you are the one who knit him together in his mother's womb. He is fearfully and wonderfully made. Every cell in his body belongs to you. We would delight in nothing more, Father, than for you to bring forth and produce a miracle on behalf of this child and this family. I, I have every confidence that it would not only be to your glory, but it would be lifted up to your glory over and over and over again. Um, provide for them the resources that are necessary uh, not only for the accomplishing of your will, but for um, the, the the desire of their hearts, which is to see their child healed. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Luke, thanks so much for joining us today. We really, really appreciate your work at the Philos thank Project. You, Harvey. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. So much. Friends, we'll be right back. Okay, next up, I've got Dan DeWitt. Uh, we are going to talk about not only the Weekend Worldview Reader, we're going to talk about not falling into the ditch of skepticism or the ditch of uh, thinking that the things in the Bible are just mythical and therefore have nothing to do with what's going on here in the real world. His article is Don't Gut Your Faith. That conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
Joining me again today, Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. Um, you can link to everything that we're talking about today and find it all at theolatte.com. Dan, welcome back. Thanks, Carmen. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Okay, so this is an intriguing uh, headline here. Don't gut your faith. Um, now, it's hunting season where I live, so when you gut something, that's just not <laughs> yes. good. It just leaves it with no ability uh, to, to move or live. So talk with us about these um, these tendencies that we have as Christians to approach the Bible in a way that ultimately sort of leaves us without a leg to stand on in our conversations. Well, you just brought back to memory, you know, hunting expeditions and the smell of when you gut it's an awful. animal. It's awful. It is awful. Literally, and so that's why it's I'm called sure- awful. And, and so that's right. And so I'm sure there's some parallel I can make on that. But the, what I'm trying to get at in my article is related to what I do every day, which is teach hundreds of undergraduate liberal arts students, which I love. And teaching at a conservative Christian university, you might expect that students kind of come in and we're all on the same page with how we view these things. And it's never because students are um, kind of have bad motivations or they're here to corrupt things. But often what I experience is students with good intentions often don't realize how deeply they've been influenced by secularism. And to that point, you know, I'm sure that I don't realize all the ways that I'm affected by secularism. So I talk about two ditches that students often end up in. And one of them is in skepticism, where they, because of the influence of living in a secular world, they just kind of view all the miraculous claims with a little bit of disdain or a little bit of embarrassment. On the other side of the road, the other ditch, is mysticism, that they just see the Bible as a, a, as a story primarily about the values that we have. But what's true of both ditches is that they don't see the Bible as a trustworthy way to understand the physical world they live in. When I think about, I mean, I actually drew like a little picture of mine wouldn't be as good as a drawing that you would do, but right, there's this... <laughs> There's this way that we walk in. We walk by the Spirit, um, this this way of Christ. Um, the the Bible is um, is an inspired guide. I mean, I recognize that the Holy Spirit is the guide, but like, right, the Bible helps me see mm-hmm. where my foot should fall. Um, and these ditches, this ditch imagery is really, really helpful. So I have a ditch on my left and a ditch on my right, and we're not making left and right uh, arguments here like like politically, politically, but there is this skeptic, skeptics ditch and there is this mystics ditch. What's the yeah. difference between the two ditches? Well, you know, Francis Schaeffer, I, and I referenced Schaeffer in the article, talked about a two-story view of truth. And it's, if you imagine a two-story house, to introduce another metaphor, that on the first story you have facts, and on the upper story you have values. And often Christians will see um, Christianity and the Bible is kind of this two-story model where what the Bible's talking about is really the upper story. Um, it's the second floor. It's detached from the real world. What's going on in the first story is, you know, science and people who really care about evidence and facts. And so they end up looking at the Bible as talking about this upper story of truth. And one, one ditch is to become cynical of supernatural claims in the Bible— And that really is to see the Bible as just being about this upper story. And the secular approach or the skeptic ditch is is just that. It kind of 
is embarrassed about what's in the Bible that talks about divine intervention or even things related to God creating the world. It could be just a little embarrassed about that. The mystic ditch, on the other hand, would have the same thing. They would see the biblical claims as related to upper story truths, not about the real world, but they would embrace them and celebrate them as having this kind of spiritual significance and value. But what's true, both ditches, is they don't see the Bible really talking about this world we live in. I'll give one more quick example. Not far from where I'm, where we're having this conversation is Yellow Springs, Ohio. It's about 10 minutes away. And there's a school there, Antioch College. Stephen Jay Gould, a celebrated scientist who went on to teach at Harvard and NYU, graduated from Antioch. And as a skeptic, he promoted the kind of thing Schaefer was challenging. He said that science talks about the real world and religion talks about a world to come. And they really don't talk about the same things. They don't overlap. And what I have to do with my students is try and confront them with the fact that the Bible does make claims about the real world. And we shouldn't either be a mystic on the one hand or a skeptic on the other. So my passion is, you know, helping people reconnect the eternal with the everyday. So you are you are touching on um, something here that matters a great deal to me. I would say matter matters. Like mm-hmm. the incarnation of Jesus definitely uh, is a place to which I would point to say um, it is about the real world. It, it, you know, God is not, you know, trapped in some upper story um, where he's only concerned about the things of, of heaven and um, and angelic beings. No, no. God is deeply concerned about the things of the earth. In fact, um, it's his hands that, you know, dug in and actually made us. Um, you point to Genesis and the Genesis story as important here, um, but really there's nothing. There's no headline. There's no conversation. There's no uh, challenge that we face in life, real life, that's not of concern to God and not somehow dealt with right. by the principles of the Bible. That's absolutely right. And that's where, you know, the Bible does talk about values, of course. Um, it talks about the way we should live, a moral code. In fact, it talks about God as the source of the moral law itself. But it also has a lot to say. I mean, look at all the, the dietary restrictions for the Jewish people. I mean, to say that the Bible somehow doesn't care about the real world um, is to miss the fact that the Bible makes really big claims about the physical world, like in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And that's Scripture has, from the very beginning, taught that the Bible, the universe, has a beginning. That's actually a, a, a fact that was not accepted by scientists until Albert Einstein. The predominant view until Einstein's theory, which he was even reluctant to accept— the predominant view was that the universe was eternal. Well, the Bible, if if taken seriously, would have helped scientists um, arrive at a more factual understanding of the world a whole lot earlier. So, um, Dan, just to tie this uh, part of our conversation up, um, students are more comfortable uh, maybe having conversations about theology until until we start talking about the body or the diet or sex or relationships or marriage or divorce or money or work or uh, politics. But when we start talking about what, you know, are considered very real world issues, um, people become uncomfortable imagining that those are theological conversations. And that's what you're trying to draw back together here, that we can't get off in the ditch on one side or the other. We actually have to walk by faith right in the middle of the uh, of the road and allow the Bible to uh, be a trustworthy guide. 
That that's absolutely right. And if you bracket off what the Bible says about the original creation before the fall, Genesis one and two, and the end of the Bible, Revelation twenty one and on, talking about the new creation, you'll see most of the Bible is about living in this real physical fallen world and has everything to do with who one sleeps with, who one marries, who one votes for. It has, you know, what scientific theories should even be entertained as being plausible. The Bible speaks to these things. And when you when you speak to these things as well as a Christian, this is where you're going to find confrontation and controversy. But to be faithful to Scripture is to take God at His Word. Amen. All right, I'm going to continue my conversation with Dan DeWitt in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Picking up our conversation with Dan DeWitt, you can find the topics that we're discussing today at theolatte.com. Dan, let's pivot to another piece you have posted, Cyberpunk 2077, dystopian visions of the future are no longer novel. What's going on here, man? Well, so I I watch a lot of my news through the most convenient ways possible, to be honest. (laughs) And so on my smartphone, um, I have the CBS News app, and um, I like CBS News as a news outlet and, and, you know, recognizing that all news outlets have a certain agenda and certain biases. So all that aside, I watch a lot of news through them. And I've seen over and over again, every day as I'm streaming news at different points, they'll have this commercial for a new video game, which is called Cyberpunk 2077. And Keanu Reeves is the main spokesperson for their advertising. He's also a character in the game. And in the commercial, what really first you know, got my attention um, is that Keanu Reeves asked, in 2077, what makes someone a criminal? And then he answers, getting caught. And mm. so I, I went back and watched some interviews about this. I've watched like longer video introductions of the game. And it's just really the language, the violence, the lack of any kind of moral scheme is just atrocious. Atro- well, you, whatever the word is, atrocious. There we go. Um, and it's reason for concern. And But what the idea that stuck out and I wanted to write about was— you know, now we're not asked to to read a dystopic description with kind of a warning, but rather we're invited to participate in it through a video game. We just talked recently with um, Paul Ace from Focus on the Families Plugged In about his book, um, which is Burning Bush 2.0. And it is how pop culture has replaced the prophetic in in our culture. And so um, you are pointing to something that others are pointing to as well. And Mm -hmm. one one of the main roles and responsibilities, I feel like as a, you know, I'll use the word mature Christian, but it's just because I'm a little bit older than, you know, other folks who are on the journey now. Um, But part of the responsibility that I feel is actually helping people see that, helping them see what they're not necessarily uh, seeing otherwise. Talk with us about that. Talk with us about, um, you know, how we swim in the water of culture in such a way that we are not even aware of the realities that are being presented to us. Yeah, I, you know, one of the things in this video that is th- the most concerning to me is not necessarily the profanity, which is in in the longer um, commercials that you can find on YouTube, um, or even necessarily the violence, right? They, you know, I know people that are gamers that might play kind of um, 
reenactment of war to where you're a soldier. And it's in the context that you could kind of make sense of that the violence that's going on is mirroring real world violence that's necessary military violence or whatever. Um, I, I think that there are dangers to that, too. But what the main thing that struck me is what this says about what we view about humanity, mm-hmm. that we are um, destroying and mutilating as entertainment uh, the depiction of an image bearer. I recognize mm-hmm. that, you know, a, a video game, it's not a real person, but it's a depiction of an image bearer. And what we have to bring back people back to, um, parents and uh, younger people who'd be playing these games, is Christians have a glorious vision of what it means to be created in the image of God, and we shouldn't laugh at or participate in a complete um, rejection and annihilation and mutilation of that. And at the heart of this game is a vision of humanity that is very unbiblical. Gameplay is uh, is really significant. I mean, I you know, we think about the games that children play and the ways in which the games we play then begin to influence how we think about ourselves and others and our role and responsibility in the world or aggression or money. I mean, on and on and on. Just think about the games that uh, that we set before children. And we're making a choice early on in terms of of those games. But as they get older, we let them make more and more of those decisions. This is a, a lot of this is about um, how our conscience is formed in terms of the understanding of not only what is right and wrong, but what I will engage in as a Christian. There are words I will not use. Um, and there are images that I, you know, I don't want them in my head because I know that those are going to set hooks in my mind. And um, and I don't want those hooks in my mind. So talk a little bit about the, that, that responsibility as well. Well, of course, the Apostle Paul says, whatever is good, whatever is beautiful, whatever is true, think about these things. And bookending that, that passage in Philippians, he says for the, um, the peace of God to guard your hearts and minds. And mm-hmm. he ends by saying, and the God of peace. And so we see both the peace of God and then the God of peace, the presence of God surrounding this idea of what we put in our mind. And so what you put in your mind affects the peace of God you experience and also the presence of God that you're aware of in your lives. And so this is vitally important. And I don't necessarily want to take a hard line um, kind of puritanical stance, to use that term in a derogatory way, um, to say you can't use any video games, but you certainly certainly shouldn't use them uncritically, and you certainly don't want to allow young people um, to just jump into a game like this that's going to immerse them in a view of the world and a view of what it means to be human that is contrary and antithetical to that picture, that beautiful, true picture of what God says about humanity in Scripture. And so I point to a Harvard University article. They have some practical um, encouragements for parents, and I think they're they're really helpful. Like, don't let your kids play these play games in their room. Make them play it in the public space. Play the game with your kids so you know exactly what's in it. And, of course, as Christians, we want to go a step further and make sure we're reinforcing the biblical values. Um, Dan, you've also got a video teed up. Christians shouldn't try to make the the Bible fit Darwinian evolution. Um, where can people find that? Because I, I just think that's just a really helpful resource for people to tune into. 
Yeah, there's a great book um, called Theistic Evolution, a Philosophical, Scientific, and Theological Critique. And so I'll have the video in the Weekend Worldview Reader, which will be published on Friday. Um, it's just a video that's on YouTube that gives an overview from a number of experts just raising the concern that people who are rushing to try and make Darwinian evolution fit the Bible are overlooking certain scientific, philosophical, and theological challenges in doing so. And so I'm going to be publishing a number of articles in the future, just helping readers think through um, how should they view the topic of theistic evolution. And a lot of this comes back to, we don't want to get our faith. Um, God does make claims about the world like he created it, and the claim that he created man in his image. And the way that we view humanity has massive um, significance for things, even like the video games we discussed today. So lowering our view of humanity um, has severe consequences, and not least of which is our view of the Bible. So we want to make sure that the Bible is driving this conversation. That's tremendously helpful. All right, uh, Dan DeWitt, thank you so very much. You guys can find uh, links to everything that we talked about today at Theolatte. Dot com. Uh, Dan, I'm going ahead and teeing up a conversation in the future on Chesterton and cheese. I'm just warning yes. you in advance. The Chesterton <laughs> cheese conversation is coming. Hey, thank you, my friend. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Carmen. We'll be right back. Okay, so there's so much we could say about last night's, I don't know, what shall we call them, the dueling debates. Um, I think that uh, one of the things I want to be sure that we lift up, I, I recognize, like, people would very much like to already be beyond November the 3rd, um, as if on November the 3rd we're going to have an answer to the question whether or not the current president of the United States will have a second term or whether or not the former vice president of the United States shall become the next president of the United States. Um, I think it's high time that we recognize we may well not have an answer to that question on November the 3rd or even November the 4th. I think we need to prepare ourselves to begin thinking about um, election season. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we need to be thinking about the election as not a, a point in time on a day. Uh, I just, I just think we just need to be, preparing for that. Um, I do hear a lot of people asking questions that start with what's next. What's next? What's next um, in the American conversation? What's next for America on the world scene? What's next for my polit particular political party, uh, regardless of which party that is? What's next for my party? Um, and part of that is dependent on whether or not your party's candidate wins the election. What's next for this nation? Seriously divided on so many fundamental issues. And and how does that conversation go depending on who wins the White House? What's next for the conversation that we must be having about the value of our democratic system, uh, the ideals of freedom and liberty? What's next for those conversations? What's next in the conversation about uh, policing in our local communities? What's next in the conversation about protesting and or riots in our communities? What's next in terms of the conversation about COVID-19? Um, what's next for 
our government, the economy, healthcare, the courts, on and on and on and on. What's next? And each and every one of those conversations ultimately gets down to what I would describe um, as home economics. What's happening in my own home? What am I concerned about in my own home? Um, Sometimes that's the value of having town halls because real people stand up and ask real questions about what's really going on in their real homes. Sometimes those questions simply give the candidate an opportunity to revisit a talking point we've already heard. But in other occasions, you know, in other moments, there are opportunities for us to hear something that we may not yet quite that we may not have heard in quite the way we get to hear it in uh, in a candidate's. Shall I say sometimes candid answer? To a question. And so last night, former Vice President Joe Biden um, reassured a mother on uh, on national television in the town hall event that he was engaged in that he would protect her daughter's rights. Her daughter's eight years old. Protect her daughter's rights to full access to transgender therapies and reassignment surgeries. Quote, I promise you there's no reason to suggest there should be any right denied your, and then in parent, transgender daughter, that your other daughter uh, has a right to be and do. None. Zero. And so um, I think that if you just want to highlight one one talking point from last night's uh, dueling town halls or split screen town halls, as you might think about them, you might just consider this. We have a Democratic nominee who has committed himself and his administration and the American taxpayer to the protection, furtherance and ultimately funding of gender transitioning for children, including an eight year old whose mother asked the question on live television. There is a lot at stake in this election, including the question of whether or not we're ready to be those people. That's not maybe we the people, but maybe it it is. All right, we got another hour of mornings with Carmen up next. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.